and welcome to episode 38 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I hope you've all had a lovely week. I've got a very exciting guest for you this week, and I am really, really looking forward to you hearing this conversation. Um, my guest is Bob Olson, who was the mastering engineer, the in-house mastering engineer at Motown Studios in Detroit. I haven't really covered Motown at all. So when I managed to um, get a link up with Bob, I was so excited um, to cover this topic, really. Motown is a, a style of music that I adore. And uh, to, the chance to speak with somebody that was involved in some seminal recordings like that is, uh, yeah, it's just too too good to be true. It was amazing. Um, he's such an insightful guy. He's a really happy guy. <laughs> Um, so I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. We talked for a long time, so I've split this conversation into three parts. Um, and yeah, I, I think that that was the right thing to do. I didn't really want to leave anything out because there's some nuggets of wisdom all over this conversation. And I thought the only fair thing to do was to just give you it in its entirety. So, uh, so that's what I've done. And this will be going on for the next three weeks. Um, I foolishly managed to delete my audio or maybe I just didn't even push record on my audio. I, I recorded the Zoom conversation and it was going through a, an interface and all that kind of thing. So the, the sound quality is good, but not my my voice is not as good as normal, which you'll notice. Not as good as normal. You know what I mean. So anyway, um, you can still hear it. It just doesn't sound like it usually sounds. Um as you're here, we'd started the conversation quite naturally. And that, that seems to have been a trend for the next few interviews that you're going to hear, actually. Um, and I'm enjoying that rather than sort of an official hard start to the interview, if you like. So I, I much enjoy, much in, more enjoy doing that. Uh, I think that's probably why I forgot to push record. <laughs> so anyway, I hope you'll enjoy that this conversation. Um, I'm not going to tell you about my isolated drums this week because I don't know what they're going to be. Um, I am quite busy at the studio at the moment, so I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants, as it were. Um, that's pants in the uh, the English sense of the word, like uh, underwear, as opposed to pants in the American sense of the word, which are just normal trousers. Um, anyway, uh, just a reminder that uh, all of these episodes are on YouTube now. I've been uploading them to YouTube, so if you search either that 60s recording podcast or all you need is drums you can find all these episodes on youtube um so anyway we're gonna dive into this conversation here we go bob olsen part one of three here we go the anniversary of what's going on it, it's been a bit although thinking about it being 50 years ago is freaky <laughs> well yeah <laughs> God, <laughs> you—I mean, you don't—you—you you don't look old enough for it to have been uh, to to have been a young man at that time. <laughs> yeah, I was in my twenties. Yeah, I mean, we all were. I was. Yeah. I was. I mean, that's what's wrong with music today. Is there, <laughs> <laughs> is there's too many old people. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I mean, oh, I mean, it's a. It, we could talk about just that, couldn't we? I mean, it's. Um, I think everybody's got so much access to everything they w could want these days that they're, they're not learning the proper 
you know they're not learning properly and there's too much choice and too many options to uh, to edit and all that kind of stuff that's a yeah. that's what i think anyway <laughs> oh yeah well the i mean back then you didn't you didn't have the possibilities of of doing doing 10 takes and putting the pieces together and and tuning them <laughs> I, mean, I mean it's funny we actually had technology for tuning believe yeah. it or not it was a tape-based uh thing but we never talked about it we didn't want anybody knowing about it because it was such a pain in the neck oh i can imagine how did it work what was it uh i gather it was a tape loop thing it was company called Eltro. Okay. I can't say I've heard of it. I didn't know it existed. <laughs> and it, it uh, yeah, well, well, it was unique in terms of music. See, all this stuff was invented in the late 20s in the movie industry. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I've done, uh, I did an episode on, uh, on sort of the history of microphones and, uh, kind of gathered that a lot of the a lot of microphone uh sort of technology gathered steam throughout the movie industry um as you say in the 20s and 30s oh yeah that was the, the market let me get my microphone pointing at me okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah it it really in fact that was one of the main influences of technology at Motown yeah. is that Mike McLean, our chief engineer was a huge movie buff. I didn't and, know that. And had worked in a theater in, I mean, basically from, I guess the time he was 15 or 16 years old, he'd worked in theaters and wow and that was really his thing and his the uh from what i from what i understand and from what he told me he read about the way to allow a tape machine to drop in in an article in the Society for Motion Picture Television Engineers Journal because RCA had built this thing for, I think it was Glen Glen Sound in Hollywood. And so that it meant that they could record. I mean, the problem had been that a reel was about 10 minutes and you had to get a perfect mix. Oh. And they could be mixing. 40 different, I mean, I mean, it was massive. It, it, it was massive compared to anything in music. And so you had, you would have typically three people working on it and they had to get a perfect take in 10 minutes. And so the punch in ability meant that they could go back and edit and drop into the, because they were recording to a 35 millimeter magnetic film. 
you know, film coated like tape. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but they couldn't, apparently they couldn't really cut it without it being a problem. Okay. And splice it. So, without making a noise. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't know. So, uh, so anyhow, he adapted that to Motown's three track machines. And we were actually doing phrase by phrase punch downs very early on from what I gather. I, I started in 1965. Yes. So it was already they had gotten eight track in 1964. It was um, from from what I've read about sort of your time there and, and Motown in general, it just seems way ahead of its time completely. Oh, it was. I mean, I had no idea how far ahead of its time was until I left, <laughs> <laughs> moved to San Francisco, and then was shocked at, at how primitive wally hyder recording was which was the top man um so are, are you happy just diving right in because I, I i mean i guess we've already started chatting a little bit i uh, i usually do a little bit of an intro but <laughs> i'm happy just uh just to crack on if 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 you're happy i'm kind of mind. fantastic <laughs> um i was uh I mean, there's so much I I want to ask you. <laughs> I was trying to think of a good place to start, and I wondered what um, I wondered if you could. How would you describe sort of what what you are essentially? Because I, I I think mastering engineer only doesn't quite do it justice. So I wondered, in your words, what would you? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> well, mastering. I mean, I used to call the cutting room at Motown my nerd cave. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, uh, I mean at that time our job was to get the hottest possible 45 single recording because see the challenge was to get through the broadcast programming meeting where they decided what was going to go on the air okay and so our focus was getting through those meetings because everybody sat in on one where something got completely overlooked because it wasn't as loud as all the rest. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me somehow. <laughs> yeah, that same game is still going on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it's all about is, and it's about, it's about that first impression and where it gets wild is that the broadcasters actually figured out that if you have too much distortion, people tune out after a minute or two. Mm. And so you, you actually don't engage the audience as well as you can with something with dynamics and clarity. That, that makes sense. You get tired. Yeah, it's tired listening to it. People don't want to believe it, but but apparently that's it. But now we're awash in this 
hipster idea of it being as loud as possible. I say, see, the thing of it is in vinyl, the uh, peak limiting, the what they call brick wall peak limiting, didn't buy you any more level. What controlled the level was the amount of low end. Okay. On yeah. the and of course, we wanted to have plenty of low end, but uh, we, but we also wanted to have uniformity so that we would have a master tape that could go anywhere in the world and have a flat cut. It makes and, me uh, wonder about. Uh, so my background is in a lot of Beatles um, music and sort of obviously mm -hmm. British 60s stuff. And I know the Beatles had a big thing about the records coming from the US having a lot of low end on them and the, the records they were making not. What, what, what do you think it was that Motown had that gave it that sort of thick richness? Well, we were, we were aiming at that richness. Okay. And uh, I think well, EMI wanted, and they did this at Capitol in the U.S. too. They would they they saw disc mastering as a as a you know get it out quick just run it through a bunch of stuff and, you know, don't even pay any attention to the settings. And one of the things they would do is they would high pass stuff. Okay. High pass everything and run it through a Fairchild, which I mean, Fairchild sounded awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's been a real eye roller. We were so happy to get rid of the Fairchilds. <laughs> yeah, I've got a. I have some questions about that later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, great irony. But well, the biggest problem with the Fairchild was that they would go through tubes in a couple months. You'd have to replace the tubes. So I'm not sure how many younger people have ever even heard one that was working properly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think you're right. I mean, I certainly haven't heard a heard a. I think I've been. I may have used one in a studio a few times, but they're not common. You know, a proper an old one anyway. You know, a vintage one. Yeah. Oh well, they were expensive. Mm. I mean, that's why we had we had several at Motown and. The, the the valve ones or the tube ones, their transistor stuff was horrible. <laughs> oh God! And we had some of that. See, see, the thing of it is, back then, no normal person could afford a studio to own a studio, and the studio owners were never, almost never, recording engineers, and so you would basically talk the boss into buying something. <laughs> and then if it turned out to be a piece of shit, <laughs> you would just quietly not use it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, 
is, I guess it's different that, you know, I, I've been reading a lot about um, Poltex recently because I've, I've done an interview with um, uh, Steve, who's restarted the Poltex company. And I guess it's about shipping, you know, the, the reps for those companies would ship gear around the studios because no one had heard of this stuff yet. You know, it's not like now where the internet is exists and everybody knows about yeah. everything. You know, you go and try something out and uh, yeah, it's just what was presented to you was what you bought. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lorry going past. I live on a building site at the moment. <laughs> I was wondering about uh, just I, I want to talk a little bit about your journey into into Motown, um, specifically uh, your sort of Saturdays at United and what you learned as a sort of 16 year old watching how that studio operated. Uh, well, it was, it was, it was interesting. The, I mean, the real, I mean, my real training was actually in the eighth through 12th grades where I was in a radio drama program. Ah. And that's where I learned about microphones and mixing and tape editing and so were you you were involved in the technical side of it as opposed to acting in it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. And uh, I mean, I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot about, I mean, I learned that commercial radio, what's for sale is the audience. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's the key to understanding the music industry, the... <laughs> <laughs> very important thing to understand that the, the uh yeah the audience buys the music but everybody else is basically buying the audience that will buy the music <laughs> <laughs> and so so i learned i learned that in high school because we had a woman from an ad agency come in and talk to us Ah. And I was lucky because my teachers had both been producers at NBC. Oh, I didn't I didn't know that. That's really cool. And what happened was after the war, the the army had trained a lot of men to do the armed forces radio thing. And after the war, they offered a tax credit to people hiring veterans mm. and so the networks basically fired everybody they could so they could replace them with a veteran Man. and that's uh, that especially applied to women and these women had both actually been at the network before the war it wasn't that they were replacing men who had gone off to war <laughs> <laughs> but almost everybody got canned the in fact it's hilarious because in many ways commercial broadcast radio a lot of it was invented by a woman oh, i didn't know that either we had uh, her name was judith waller judith judith yeah i'm gonna look her up w-a-l-l-e-r 
and there's a little bit of information about her on the internet. Uh, she, what happened was she was a uh, advertising copywriter and a, and a librarian. And the uh, editor of one of the newspapers in Chicago or the owner thought it would be hip to buy a radio station, which was the new thing in the early 1920s. And, it, and because he knew her and he knew that she had a, just a vast knowledge of all kinds of different things, he hired her to be the station manager. And nobody had any idea what broadcast programming would be. That was totally new. And so she was making it up. <laughs> <laughs> as she went <laughs> but she also uh had you know they would hire women they they would hire african americans for god's sake mm. because nobody was looking at <laughs> you know it was all audio so they, they weren't having to worry about their reputation and and so any anyway, it was like probably the first major industry that was somewhat free of racism and sexism. Hmm, interesting. Until television came along. <laughs> well, yes. But but anyway, these both of these women that I took from had lost their jobs and had become drama teachers. And uh, they had talked the school board into constructing a little studio for radio drama. And so we would, the kids would do the sound effects and you know, rattle the paper. And oh, and the funniest part was back then they, they used these RCA ribbon microphones, these sort of diamond-shaped things mm -hmm. that the the BBC 30, whatever it is, microphone was an attempt at an improvement on the RCA. Okay. And but they were bi-directional, and that meant the dead side, among other things, was right below it. And ah. so they would print the scripts on a uh, sort of a thick tissue paper. It, they'd be typed on this tissue paper. And so then you would read it. And then when you reached the end of a page, you would drop it and it would fall. Uh, well, it makes fall, complete sense now. <laughs> fall under the microphone. And because it was dead, nobody would hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of the things I really remember. But anyhow, uh, so I, well, my dream was to get a job in radio, but one of my uh, friends in the, in, the, in the drama class, his father was the head of advertising for the Lincoln Mercury division of Ford Motor Company. Okay. 
And he was one of the sponsors of the Ed Sullivan show uh. in New York. And he, uh, now I'm drifting off into Andrew Oldham land. Uh, <laughs> and he, he, uh, he, anyway, he was really connected. And so he got us a tour of ABC's broadcast facility in Detroit. Amazing. And we got to see the first videotape recorder in town. Wow. The first color TV camera, even though they weren't broadcasting color yet. Oh, really? How good is this? <laughs> and all this, this wild technology. And they, they were the origination point for the network. And they would ship them 35 millimeter prints of the TV shows. And they had a room dedicated to streaming them onto the telephone lines that they distributed the video on. Wow. So you would have been, what, 15 about this time? 14, 15? Uh, I guess I was born in 45. This was 59. So. Yeah, 14, 15. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, it must have felt space age. It must have been. Yeah. Oh, I, it was wild. So anyway, I wanted a job in radio, but this guy said, oh, well, you've got to have a college degree to work here. And I could not imagine having the money to get a college degree. I mean, that was just, no, I actually wound up doing some college based on some student loans, but, uh, I sort of gave up on radio. I also, uh, you know, I didn't realize that he was talking about the network jobs and that you didn't need that to work for a local radio station. And you didn't, and if you were really successful at a local radio station, you could get a job at the network. So, you know, yeah. I didn't know that back then. <laughs> but, but I think also he, he didn't want, he didn't want me to drop out of school and what have you. So, but anyway, that led me to recording studios. And Detroit had two independent, well, there were several independent recording studios, but the, well, I guess you can't call one owned by a jingle company independent. I mean, they were basically recording their own, I mean, you know, record label studio and a radio station studio are an independent. They're owned by the body that the material is being created for. Yeah. So the independent studios were rented out primarily to advertising agencies for making radio commercials. Okay. And that was true in Detroit. That was true everywhere, actually. The, and that was the bread and butter work of studio musicians was the advertising not records oh okay a lot of people don't realize that no well yeah i i didn't but it i mean i used sense. to kid that motown was the, was our musician's hobby 
bet it was a breath of fresh air for them coming and playing, you know, yeah. playing songs like that. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, in fact, that's why Motown ultimately had to leave Detroit was because that business left Detroit and a lot of the musicians with it. Uh. And the, see, the whole music and what happened in music was Chicago was the center of the music industry until the late 1966, 67, 68. And the rest of it was in New York. And Motown was a, I like to look at it as an artist management company that had its own label. Yeah. It wasn't really a record label in the same sense of others. They, and I don't think they made that much money off the records. Oh, really? They were a promotional vehicle for advancing the artists. Mm -hmm. And they and they had the they were the music publishers of all the songwriters. And so the money was in the music publishing and getting shows for the artists. Now that, that was the real profit center and the, the records were to promote the artists basically. Mm -hmm. and although even then at that, I mean, our, our artists were among the highest paid in the industry only they didn't know it. <laughs> 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 because what it ha what happened was Barry had uh, done distribution deals with a number of labels, and the one he thought was the most fair was chess. Okay. And so they patterned the the uh, contracts after chesses. And chess was a relatively low percentage of the retail price of the record, but there was nothing deducted but actual advances paid to the artist and the, the musician's fees for the sessions. You know, no charge for promotion, no charge for oh. all the stuff. And it was based on the retail price of the record and not the wholesale price, yeah. which would double the number of the percentage. <laughs> I didn't realize this until I was I was working with Quicksilver Messenger Service and we signed a contract with Capital. And I read the contract and was in utter shock because I, I knew about the Motown contracts from some of the artists that we'd talked about it. And I read this thing and I go, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and the next time I was in Detroit, I mentioned that to Barry Gordy's sister, Esther, and she laughed. <laughs> she said, yeah, we knew it. <laughs> she, said the pro she said the problem was that Barry took an attitude of, of well, if they can't figure out it's a good deal, the heck with them. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you don't make it like that in business if you if you don't you know have an attitude like that sometimes. And so, uh, so that's why there's all the talk about how they all got ripped off, and I mean the the lawyers had a field day with it. I can imagine, yeah. 
because they could say, well, you know, if you were on such and such a label, you would be getting 15%. <laughs> and in reality, in dollars and cents, our artists were taking home more money than the artists on the other labels. <laughs> <laughs> so great irony. <laughs> and to, I mean, to this day, people think that they got ripped off. <laughs> go figure yeah but but anyway it was it was very interesting because i mean a whole lot of what we did at motown was very unique and very i mean barry had dealt with labels but he had never really worked at a label and almost i mean the only people we had who had worked at a label were barney ailes who ran the sales department and Barry had a good relationship with him because he had owned a record store and he knew Barney from that because Barney had been the Detroit distributor for Capital. Okay. And so they knew each other and they knew, they both knew a lot of how record store economics worked. And the, the big thing that they knew was that record stores all lost money 11 months a year. I've and Christmas and time. hopefully made it back over Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> and, the only, and the record stores didn't pay their bills unless you had another record they needed. Oh, yeah, interesting. And that, that was easy for the majors, but that was hard for an independent. Yes. And so that was another reason that Motown spent an ungodly amount of money on producing the singles. What was the... Because, because if we didn't get another hit, we didn't get paid for the last one. Uh, <laughs> I um, I read in an interview, of, uh, so just focusing on singles for a second, about um, how much attention went into them. That They'd go through... Am I right in thinking that you mastered something between sort of 10 and 15 versions of Science Seal Delivered before you got the final one? Oh, God, at least, probably yeah. more. So they would, they, would they, they would just sort of keep revisiting in-house? Keep, keep remixing. We had what was called the quality control department. And what we would do is we would get the engineer would do two or three mixes, bring us the tape. We'd do what we called a rundown disc where we'd get a rough level on the different takes and it, it all went on to a 33 and a third, 10 or 12 inch, depending on how long it was. And then the quality control department would listen to them and they would decide which one or two they liked the best. And then we'd go back and cut a hot 45 single on each of them. What would be the, the differences in the mixes? Do you, is there, was there specific things that they were changing for each one? Uh, the amount of vocal, the, uh, the way the low end worked, the just all manner of things really. Mm. Oh, and the producers were not allowed in the mix room. Oh, really? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. A few, a few of the producers did their own mixes 
because they had come from engineering. And so Brian Holland was able to do mixes, but he was in competition with other people. I mean, everybody was in competition to get the release. I see. And the judge of the competition was the quality control department. And that was, was originally a woman named Billie Jean Brown or Billie Jean Studemeyer, I think was her. I'm not sure which is her maiden name and which is her married name. But anyway, she, she was a really smart kid that Barry had run into and and she would judge a record basically on what it felt like to dance to and what it felt like to sing along with. Okay, yeah. Well, and that, that was the test. Yeah. <laughs> and the amazing thing is that, you know, after watching that, I discovered that I could tell. Uh. Doing, you know, I mean, I didn't dance, but I could <laughs> bop my head and sing along, and I could definitely tell which mix was better. Would you and, uh, reserve your judgment until it had been decided? And I, well, I didn't, I didn't judge. I mean, yeah. you know, I didn't, wasn't part of that. But I realized that they were right 90% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> the producers hated them. <laughs> I can imagine they did, yeah. Could but you anyway, that was the process. But the thing is, all of those remixes, if, if the artist had been paying for that, it would have been horrible. Mm. And that's part of why they didn't charge the artists for studio time. I guess it makes sense having, when it's all in uh, sort of in-house like that, it, it doesn't seem to work by the hour. And, you know, if you're renting a studio, it's just part of the, the business of what, you know, what yeah. the, the place is doing. Yeah. Now we were expected to, I mean, if we were doing a Hot 45 single, we were expected to get it out in 20 minutes. Oh, wow. And if we were doing, if we were doing a mix, we were expected to get a mix in 20 minutes. Wow. And eight track. Yeah, pressure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, if you would get an assignment of, okay, we want to do this, this, and this, and we'd work it through. I suppose. But, I but it, it was a, an amazing process. And, I mean, really brilliant. And it's a good thing that, that Barry Gordy had not worked at any other record labels because that would have brought some preconceived notions into it. But it also wasn't, I mean, they publicized, I mean, he made some remarks about how, well, he got the idea from the assembly line of an auto company. And that's true in a way in terms of we were dividing the work up but we were dividing the work up largely to keep it objective. Okay. To, you know, to it's come out of fresh ears, so to speak. Yeah. It's the way that you speak about it, it feels more like a family as opposed to 
when you talk about production lines, I've heard that that analogy before about Motown, yeah. and it doesn't feel personal. Whereas the way you speak about it feels like, yeah, uh, almost you have as much ownership over the process as anybody else in the in the process. It That's exactly how it was. Hmm. I wonder if if it's not too technical, could you talk through the the sort of um, details of the mastering process? So when you were doing you know when you were doing a hot 45 what exactly happened um in that 20 minutes well you would you would listen to the song down and watch watch vu meter <laughs> and it was one particular meter that we had and you kind of learned to do it you would like throw a high pass filter on to see how much of what was on the meter was the bass you would just kind of figure out, and we would actually set the level to two tenths of a dB. It was very, very precise, and we had aligned the the tape machine and aligned the cutting system that tight. Wow! So it was very, very precise, and and that's that's how we got so much bass and level on those records. <laughs> was actually precision <laughs> and we weren't doing any any limiting if we did eq we will qualify that we had a a high frequency limiter that we used on the 33 and a third rundowns okay but the the 45s were cut at half speed using a a variation on a actually a British DECA okay. approach. Although the, the irony is that in most cases our cuts didn't wind up getting manufactured. Oh. <laughs> because because RCA would guarantee their parts against skipping and Barry had run into records coming into his store that had a skipping problem and that would nothing would kill a record faster than something like that because the stores would ship them all back and the way radio worked I mean, the payola thing is kind of hilarious. Motown never had enough money for payola. <laughs> but uh, what all payola ever bought anybody was it was plays for two or three days until the radio station called up the local record stores and found out what people were buying. Mm. And if they weren't flying off the shelves, it was off the air. And it would probably have a harder time getting back on the air. Unless it, it, you know, a nearby city, it started flying off the shelves, and they'd maybe take another chance on it. But, but that that was critical part of the process, and so a skip would co could cost you a hit record easily. Wow, I never something I'd never even considered. So, so for that reason, they wanted RCA man doing all the plating and manufacturing the DJ copies. And RCA wouldn't guarantee it unless they made the lacquer. 
So we sent them a lacquer and the tape <laughs> and they had to match that. I see. So they were copying your master. Yeah. Their, yeah. How? Yeah. Very strange. <laughs> yeah. Which was wild. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, and we were able to, well, they would gain a little bit because they had variable pitch, but because we were fixed pitch, our, our acetates were extremely, extremely consistent uniform. And so we knew exactly how far we could push a record before it would skip. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and we also had RCA skip tests that we could run. Okay. So, uh, which was an interesting thing. It was a little cheap plastic record player with a, uh, so you had a skip test record. To and, have more and, you, base on it or... and you would adjust the uh, weights on the tone arm on the thing until they stopped skipping on this test record. Okay. And that, and that was the test. <laughs> <laughs> Had to pass that. <laughs> and RCA was going to be testing that at, at the pressing plant. So... I'm trying to just get my head around this, the test. So the test was in the, the, the weight of the, the stylus arm, as opposed yeah. to, I would imagine that was, was there sort of extreme frequencies happening on the, on the test disc to test how much it skipped up? You know, to be honest, I never listened to it. <laughs> okay. I thought it was low frequencies. It was a little 45 disc. Mm. Yeah, interesting. What so, the... oh, so anyway, it was uh, <laughs> that that the, that combination of stuff was how we got the levels up that high, and until 1960, sometime in 1966, they decided because they were having problems with the low end from RCA not matching the low end from Detroit. Okay. And so they had this idea of putting a very sharp 24 dB per octave, 70 cycle high pass in the mastering chain. And then for everybody to be mixing, assuming that was going to be there. Wow. And so any, anything from Detroit, and probably, I'm not sure when they stopped that in California, because I, I went from Detroit to San Francisco, never worked for Motown in LA. Although two, my three best friends from Detroit actually wound up working there at one time or another. So there we have it, part one of my conversation with Bob Olson. Um, hope you've enjoyed that. Uh, you'll notice that my little segue music has varied this week. Uh, that is 
Partly because I haven't actually played the isolated drum stems yet. I'm at my studio. I don't know if you can hear the reverb in the room, but uh, I decided that I was looking on my computer for something I could use as the segue. And uh, that's a song that I put together a couple of weeks ago for a, quite an exciting project that you will hear more about um, over the coming months. Um, but I, I quite like it. <laughs> so there we go. Okay, so that just leaves me to say uh, a big thank you to my good friend Joe Kane and David Henshaw for the artwork and the music for this podcast. You can get in touch with me. My email address is joe at all you need is drums. If you'd like to find out more about my studio and the sessions I do and all that jazz, you can do that at my website, allyouneedisdrums.com. Um, have a lovely week, and I will speak to you next week. Goodbye!